Design New Podcast, Episode 38. If you are stressed, stretched, and stuck, and ready to take your life to the next level, reach out to me for a free 30-minute strategy call to see what steps you can implement right now to design your best life. Email me at connect at tinamurray.com and let's create your own unique blueprint to lay the foundations for that life that you really want. Are you ready to create the life you really want? Welcome to the Design You Podcast, where I talk to everyday people who know life can be done differently with a clear mindset, positive attitude, openness to growth, and their willingness to take life to the next level. Get ready to design you. Hi guys, Tina Murray here. Today I'm welcoming to the drawing board David Hume. David has had a highly successful career in executive search and recruitment despite being totally blind. For David, life in the blind lane has meant living dreams and realizing visions. David feels he's been very privileged to travel the world and to compete in two Sydney to Hobart yacht races in his own yacht, which is appropriately called Out of Sight, Out of Mind. Join me as I chat with David about life in the blind lane. Hi, David. Welcome to the Design You podcast. How are you today? Delighted to be here. Thank you, Tina. My pleasure to have you. Now, just to fill in the people who are listening, you are blind. You've been blind since birth. Exactly. And you know what I love about what I know of you? You have done two Sydney to Hobart yacht races in your own yacht, and your yacht had the best name ever. Out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> so, I, owned a, I owned it jointly with a, uh, a psychiatrist, uh, Mike Epstein, so we couldn't resist the title. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. So tell us about being out of sight, out of mind. Tell us about your life and what can we learn from you? Well, look, I was born prematurely in a, uh, a country hospital in uh, central New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And being born prematurely, I was in those days subjected to an incubator, mm-hmm. which is oxygen, and the excess oxygen with uncovered eyes caused my blindness. Okay. And uh, we, we didn't learn about that until a year later when a, a clinic nurse said, Mavis, your son is not responding to us with his eyes. I, I think you have him, should have him checked out. And, of course, I was checked and was uh, um, deduced to be totally blind. Okay. Now, that shattered my parents, uh, Tina, because they were simple uh, working-class folk mm-hmm. and they'd never had anything to do with somebody with a disability. And uh, my father was uh, shattered in a confident sense. And it took my, my tough little mother <laughs> to say, look, we have to send him away to school. We have to give him the best opportunity that we could possibly have. Mm. And I still remember that first day we went, went to a school uh, 300 kilometres away in Sydney. Oh. It was the Runga School for the Blind. And as we approached the gates, I was in tears. My mm. mother was in tears. And how she turned away and left me that day, it, uh, it said a lot for her uh, inner conviction and courage. Absolutely. So how old were you? Five. Wow. Uh, first time at five years of age. With no skills whatsoever, mm. I was left uh, uh, at, at a boarding school 300 kilometres away from my family. Mm. And, and it was a tough gig. Uh, 
I had no friends. I battled through the first couple of days and then had to realize that I had to learn to dress myself properly, tie my shoes and feed myself, all of which was, I'd been sheltered and closeted previously. So it was a, a fairly significant leap, leap, leap of faith for me. It's a significant leap of leap for any kid. I mean, you're five. <laughs> so, but as you said, it, your mum did it knowing that she thought it was the best thing for you and, and what a brave woman. Well, I think in the end, that's, that's one of the things that the fact that I had to work hard to achieve independence and, uh, and some social skills, uh, that's, that's, uh, been a, a great, a great value to me going forward in life. I'm sure. And socially, how do you feel? You know, it's not something I would have thought of, but how do you feel as a blind person that you're disadvantaged socially? Well, one of the issues that we had was that Runga School for the Blind was not only for totally blind people, but also partially sighted. Mm -hmm. And the partially sighted kids in many cases did not belong to either world. Yes. They had chips on their shoulder and inevitably we had bullies. Mm -hmm. The, the, the process of taking us small blind kids down to the cellar and leaving us there for hours by the older kids <sighs> was only stopped short when uh, an unexpected roll call was, was uh, called and we were found missing. <sighs> but the, the most incredible thing that ever happened to me was that the, the school commissioner, sorry, the commissioner for railways, uh, Dr. Windsor, presented our school with the most elaborate uh, train, ra- rail and train complex with stations, signal boxes, the whole box and dice. Oh, cool. The damn things made a lot of noise, and we we had to sit on um, long benches which normally stored linen. <laughs> these can be locked from the outside, and I was bundled into one of these one day and locked oh, in. Oh my gosh! And of course, with the noise of the, the railways, nobody nobody could hear me, and I, I screamed for, for two hours with you know diminishing air supply oh. in a box that was you know typical of a coffin. Oh. And, and fortunately, the supervisor ultimately heard me when the trains were shut down, uh, took me out and, and led us. We, we, we all went back to our playroom. Well, I, had, I was hysterical by that time. I totally lost my temper, picked up a, a poker, jammed it into the, uh, the hot Coke stove and chased these bullies around the room with a molten hot poker. You know what? To this day, I don't, I don't uh, regret it because bullies deserve what they, 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 they get. And they never ever bothered me from that day since. Mm, I can't even imagine any of that. That happens at boarding schools, you know. Yes. Kids are bullied. Yeah, wow. So taking you forward past the bullies to how did you get onto this Sydney to Hobart gig? It's pretty impressive. Well, first of all, I came home. Uh, I came home and. Um, Went to went to a, an open high school, which did a lot for my social development. Mm-hmm. And then I had uh, I had several jobs in local government, and then in radio in in sales management. And uh, I, I met a journalist, and we we first first of all, my, my first wife Ruth sailed with me in a Corsair, which I bought, but I was the original captain. Uh, she was the original captain Bly, and I was Fletcher Christian. <laughs> uh, I couldn't sail with her, and I sailed with a friend. Uh, who had, and, and I bought a Flying Dutchman, which was an Olympic class racing yacht, mm-hmm. and that's where I really learned to sail because you go out on a trapeze, hanging out over the water, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the boat is probably the fastest single uh, monohull boat uh, boat in the world, okay. with a seventy-eight uh, Olympic rating. We did well. 
But eventually I decided to buy a, um, after going through a trailable yacht, the Seaway 25, which I called Profile after my recruitment business, um, I eventually got together with, with Mike Epstein and we bought Out of Sight, Out of Mind. We did two Sydney Hobarts. Mm-hmm. The first one we retired from because, unfortunately, some of our crew left the, the hatch open and we were swamped by a huge wave, mm. which, which wiped out our, our generator, which left us with no engine, no lights, no radio, no satellite navigation system. That was flying too blind even for me. Yeah. <laughs> that is scary stuff. That is really scary. You're making light of it. But, I, but, yeah. but amazingly, the guys wanted to go on, but approaching this, this Tasmanian coast at night, I took the hard decision. I said, look, guys, we've all got families. You guys are as much in the dark as I am, and it's a dumb, dumb call to be yep. on the treacherous coast at night. Yeah. So oh. We turned back and headed back for, uh, for Eden and retired. Mm. The second race, but that was, the, that was the, probably the, the second wildest race, 1984 race. It really was. It was, you know, crossing back stra- Bass Strait. It was like going up and down in an express lift. Wow. With a crash at every, sec- every second wave. Oof. Um, it was an, an awesome experience. And people <laughs> said to me, you were lucky out there. You were blind. I said, like hell I was. I, 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 I might be blind, but I can hear and I've got a particularly vivid imagination. <laughs> well, that's a point. I mean, you yes, you can't see, but surely that develops other senses that probably gives you an advantage in a situation like that over some of the guys that you were teamed with. Well, I think in those situations, the moment of truth is that you need to turn inertia into adrenaline, mm-hmm. and you need to uh, to focus on what the what what it is that you're trying to achieve, rather than what you're facing. Mm. And the decision to turn back, was that a tough one for you, knowing that it was about family for you or was it a pretty easy decision? No, I was, I was justifiably apprehensive and I'm used to leading, leading teams. But, you know, mm-hmm. the crew had settled into a, a period of inertia where, where they weren't, nobody was prepared to make that decision and I had to make it. Mm-hmm. And then you went back and did it all again. Yep. Second, <laughs> second time around, we were lucky. It was a, a much less eventful race there were times when i uh, i remembered the the past race and, and had to uh, had to tough it out but we we eventually uh, got to hobart sadly one thing i forgot to mention in the first race we were running second halfway across bass Strait when i took the decision to, to pull out mm. um, in the second one we weren't so lucky we would be calmed off the tasmanian coast and finished in the middle of the fleet a respectable performance but not outstanding and so what happened to Out of Sight, Out of Mind after that race? Therein lies a story. My first wife, Ruth, was, was uh, diagnosed with uh, brain melanoma and was, it was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't justify uh, leaving the kids on their own, so I, I asked Mike and he agreed to sell the boat. Mm-hmm. Yep, life decisions um, sometimes are forced upon us, aren't they? They certainly are. Yeah. What else can you share with us about your life that is, I mean, you're an inspirational man. You, you've, you've lived a very full life and I love your passion for leading people and the sort of work that you do. Tell us more about how you lead people, how to lead people properly in a team, how to really help with recruitment, etc. Well, my parents were very unhappy about the fact that I wanted to be 
more than just somebody who stood at home and and and, and didn't work. Mm-hmm. So I I had a very very uh, aggressive auntie, my auntie Alison, who I still revere to this day. She's approaching ninety four and still as healthy and vigorous as ever. Lovely. And she said to me, "Do not take any notice of your parents because they mean well, but they they, they don't have." your vision for the future. You can do anything you choose to do. Mm. So I approached Tony White from the uh, Department of Labor and Industry and he came to Musselbrook and, and got me my first job as a, as a local government clerk with the Upper Hunter County, County Council. And I, ha- I was a, a receptionist clerk there for three or four years, got very, very bored. And then because I, w- I was in music, I, I, I had a, a, a group called the Talisman. I was the singer and saxophonist. Mm-hmm. And we went to a place called Golgong, and 20 kilometres away from there is, is a place called Mudgee where there was a radio station. Mm-hmm. I was interviewed on air uh, prior to our uh, our musical gig by uh, Frank Halloran. The the owner of the station, Ron Camplin, said, you have a radio voice. If you want to come back and look for a job with me, I'll be, I'll be happy to talk to you. Wow. He did, and I joined radio as an announcer. I had difficulties because... You know, I couldn't see the, the panel. I couldn't see the lights that dictated mm-hmm. uh, um, volume, etc., which which would have blown the transmitter or, or made or distorted the message that was going out to our listeners. And Jack Sullivan, the the engineer, he he uh, put together a series of lights, etc., which uh, which helped me, you know, find the, the, the or control the, the the transmitter. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. But you know, I, I got I got bored with being a DJ. It, it didn't suit me, and I, I did some work in news in sport. But you know, being on air wasn't me. Mm-hmm. I was an okay radio announcer, but was eclipsed easily by my good friend Matt Ponsonby, another blind guy, who eventually went on to be a star at Two LT and Two UW Sydney, mm-hmm. and then became a, a one of Australia's leading voiceover artists, doing roles like pirates and so forth. That was a, 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 a natural for, for radio. So I went into sales. Ron said to me, okay, you like football? Let's, uh, let's put you into sales. And okay. by the way, because you know so much about football, <laughs> help me, uh, help me um, call a game. And I said, how the hell can I do this? <laughs> I'll put earphones on you and a microphone and, and, I'll, and I'll speak to you through the earphones and you can conduct the play. And, and, and Ron would say, uh, he'd give me the name of the person, Turner, Perkins, whatever. So here's a, here's a call of a game. On the halfway mark, the scrum has put down Coonabarabin's advantage. The ball comes out to, uh, to Irwin. He flicks the ball to, uh, to Nilsson. The ball comes out, is intercepted by Kanoa, the, the Mudgee winger, who streaks down the, the touchline and scores under the post. Anyway. <laughs> That the the crowd uh, of, our, of that game trebled to see a blind guy doing this game. <laughs> Absolutely. Come, come, come half time, I was totally bugging. I had to retire. <laughs> <laughs> that would be exhausting having uh, someone talk in your ear. <laughs> yeah, but it was good. It was fun. <laughs> so I so I got into sales. Now, being a blind person, I can talk, but my mobility was restricted to guide dogs and a white stick. Mm-hmm. So it was essential that I become a telephone sales sales aficionado. And to do that, you need to put yourself in the place of the other position, person rather, that you're going to call. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this uh, 
was easy for me because I, Marty Ellison got me into debating. Okay. Debating was something that was my first love. I absolutely adored it. And in that situation, you have to build the case for the opposition before yourself. So it was easy for me to put myself in the position of the other person and say, if I were that person and I were to receive this call, when I put down the phone, would I be happy to have, have received it? If I couldn't answer that question in my own mind, I had to go back to the drawing board and improve mm-hmm. what I was going to say. That is great advice. I I want to spread that one to the world. That is fantastic, David. And then, of course, you know, I, I, I moved on. Um, I've had my trials and tribulations in, in, in the wine industry because it's an old maxim, you know, you shouldn't you know, <laughs> make uh, your hobby your work. <laughs> and I got into wine because one of the directors of 2, 2MG Mudgy, uh, Jack Roth, was the director of Craigmore, a vineyard. Mm-hmm. And Jack took the decision it was, it was cheaper to get me interested in wine and get me slightly uh, Mozart and Liszt uh, <laughs> uh, before, rather than uh, by advertising. But eventually he was doing both. So that was my, the beginning of my passion for wine. <laughs> and you, you got out of it before you drank all the profits. Is that what you're telling me? I'm not guilty, Your Honour. <laughs> So we've got a boat, we've got wine, we've got sales. You're doing pretty good life. I think I want your life, David. Well, after the wine industry, I decided to get into, well, I was looking for a job. Mm-hmm. And the recruitment consultants who interviewed me, I thought were, frankly, inept. And I looked at it and I said, well, you've, you've learned to sell intangible services through radio. There's mm-hmm. nothing more intangible than radio airwaves, let me tell you. <laughs> Why don't you and and you 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 enjoy people, so why not become a recruitment consultant? And I did. Uh, a guy called Jeff Slade uh, was my mentor, and I worked with Jeff for three years. Um, during which time I had to lift even my high standards of telephone selling because you were dealing with high quality corporates and high quality people, and I developed. And because I was blind, I didn't need to see people. Mm -hmm. So even interviewing, I would interview a fraction of the number of people that other people would because I didn't need to see them. Yes. And I'd spend five minutes more on the phone to them with the result that I probably interviewed 80% less people than other people, which which allowed me to concentrate on, on selling. Yes. And in selling, when you're dealing with corporates and companies with, with various problems, you, again, have to be infinitely more uh, uh, infinitely more intuitive and analytical in, in terms of making phone calls. So I, I believe I developed telephone selling to an extremely high, uh, high order. Mm-hmm. Let me say this, that many of the people I placed for hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, I never got to meet. I interviewed them by phone mm-hmm. and I placed them by phone. Mm-hmm. And this included people not only throughout Australia, but internationally in uh, New Zealand, uh, the UK, uh, and, and the US, and, and Hong Kong. So tell me, how, what's that intuition? What is it that you can pick up in someone's voice that we could all learn from? That is an extremely interesting and difficult question. <laughs> I think... You develop a picture of the person in your own mind, which I think replaces what you call body language. Mm-hmm. 
and you listen to intonation. Mm-hmm. And the name of the game in the end is that you learn to ask insightful questions. Yes. Uh, for instance, the sort of interview that you're conducting with me today is exactly what I did with my clients insofar as I don't believe in asking uh, predictable questions. I believe in having free-fall conversation because that tells you a lot more about the individual than, than you know, straight questioning will ever do. Mm. And it, it, it draws people out and that's part of the beauty of it. And obviously if you're recruiting for someone, you actually need to be able to get to the bottom of it because there's no point, you, know, you talked about being really bored in your first couple of jobs. There's no point you as a recruiter putting someone who is not going to fit into a company just to fill the seat. Right. Well, after, after three years, I left Jeff Slade and I spent seven years with my partner, Ian Knopp, with our own company, Profile Management Consultants, which had offices in Sydney, uh, sorry, Melbourne, Sydney, and we had arrangements with people in, in Hong Kong and, uh, and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That ended, sadly, uh, Ian and I are still friends, but there was a misunderstanding which led to the termination of that partnership. And I went on my own as, as a recruitment consultant for some years. And I worked as a national HR director for, for, for a chartered accounting firm and, um, and, and eventually became a consultant to my own, to the recruitment industry. In other words, my former competitors, I had the experience at that stage to be, to advise them, to recruit for them and to help them build their businesses. Wow. And what sort of stuff would, you advise on like because it is what you're telling me it's real soft skills that take it means about taking time and I, I had a client i'll name him tony bedison who now runs the bedison group tony had three companies uh and the the the, uh, the total revenue was south of 10 million a year mm-hmm. and tony said to me david i can't keep good staff i, I have ordinary people who, who leave me and I can't build my business. And I said, Tony, I'm not surprised because you interview like a Gustavo colonel um, and you're, you're, you're a natural micromanager. I'm saying become a network, network manager. Let me employ people uh, for you who are going places, empower them to do what they need to do to build your business. Mm. Incentivate them in the first, first instance and after 12 months, if you're sufficiently confident, uh, then, you know, um, lock them up with equity. Mm-hmm. Now, I made a few mistakes in the early stages. Um, one one person left, Tony, has his own business. Another another didn't work out. The third time, lucky. I, recru- I recruited three people for Tony. The first uh, was to take over his executive recruitment business and Tony eventually sold that business to to uh, my, my recruit, Andrew Marty. Okay. Um, but the other two companies, they're the story. Alison Watts and Ben Wood, who are still friends of mine, joined the company. They were doing $10 million a year, remember? Mm-hmm. 15 years later, that company was doing north of $300 million. Wow. And they, they sold the business to everybody's advantage to a Japanese investment company. Mm. All because a guy took advice, stepped back, and left let let better people to do the job do it Mm, that is such valuable i wish more people in business would take your advice on that one because it is we've we've all got our own skills let the people do their things that they enjoy doing and are good at and let them run with it now of course tina i I got out of recruitment and i uh, 
I headed towards the corporate speaker circuit, as, as you know, which is where mm-hmm. where I met Tiny Tina. That you um, did. <laughs> and, and yeah, look, I got a lot of satisfaction out of speaking, but in the end, I got bored. Yes. Because telling my life story all over Australia had no appeal to me. Yep. You know why? Because I, I don't take it seriously. I had problems to overcome and did so. Mm-hmm. Other people might be fascinated with them, and that's fine. So I, I got out of the speaker's circuit and I'm in the throes of writing a book yes. called Life in the Blind Lane. So tell us about Life in the Blind Lane. Just what's the sort of assumptions that you feel that many of us would make when they're seeing you walking along with a street with your dog who's also called Tina, great name. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, what I, what I did simply was this. Sam Cawthorn was gracious enough to admit that he used a ghostwriter to help him write. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my writing style and said, you're good at writing for, formal business letters, agreements, this sort of stuff, mm-hmm. but you're not a natural author. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to my brother-in-law, Pete Murray, who's a very experienced writer, and the best decision I ever made because I, I wasn't really, interested, really particularly interested in this book because it, it, I didn't take it seriously. But what he's done is looked at, at it intuitively from a sighted person's point of view and injected a note of curiosity, mm. analysis and research mm-hmm. into what I've told him. And you know what? I think it'll be I think it'll, I think the book will sell. It even interests me and I'm, <laughs> I'm a cynic. <laughs> the in, do you think it's the insight that's making it saleable? What the curiosity? I think that Pete is a natural raconteur uh, mm-hmm. and he's curious and he's a very disciplined researcher and he's put a lot of meat on the bones of what I've given him. And I'm, I'm so happy that, that this book, the trouble is I'm having trouble pinning him down to finishing it. <laughs> my part and now he's got to, he's got to bring, bring together his. <laughs> but, of course, yeah, as, as you know, I, I'm now out of... Sam also introduced me to another guy called David Warren and I got into the... Um, outsourced uh, recruitment, offshore outsourced recruitment business. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I'm no longer with David Warren. I've, I, I spent two years there. It didn't work. And from an ethical and professional point of view, I don't want to go into the reasons. But I'm now with a, a, an American, uh, sorry, an offshore outsourced recruitment company, again based in the Philippines. They are backed by a, a substanti- substantial uh, American interests and they don't have the issues that my previous company had. Mm-hmm. My current title is that as a business development director. Which sounds perfect with all your skills. It's this recruitment and developing businesses, which you've just said, you've helped turn a business um, around and really taken it to the next level just by the advice that you've been able to give the, the people running that business. So sounds perfect to me. Well, I only respond badly to people who won't listen. And, and, <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> and, and you draw your own conclusions as to why I left the previous company. Going forward, you've got this new career opening for you, although it's not so new, lots of it is familiar. What's exciting for you? Well, what isn't exciting is that I think I, I didn't mention earlier, I married an ex-nun. We had three boys. And sadly, when those boys were between 11 and 16, my first wife, Ruth, died. Mm-hmm. Then I married the wife I have now, Liz, whom you've met, mm-hmm. and she had five kids. And what my first wife said to me, David, I want you to make a friend of Liz because she's lost her husband who was your friend. 
and you know she'll understand what you'll be going through after I die. Mm-hmm. And you know, the least she can be friends, and who knows, maybe the Brady bunch. And <laughs> as a consequence, that's a merged family, eight kids, and now twenty grandchildren. Wow, your wife Ruth sounds like a very wise woman. I, I always say that Ruth made me. And Liz saved me from becoming a wreck because I've made some bad decisions in recent times. But I don't regret any of them because I've learned from them. And frankly, I believe in the fact that you never die wondering. And you're proving that because you're getting on a Sydney to Hobart, not only once but twice. <laughs> then you, you didn't wonder. You did it. I love that. Well, yeah, look, I've had more wins than losses. I've mm. made mistakes. Uh, some of which I, I, I deeply regret. But I made them, I felt at the time, for the right reasons, probably for an over-emotional reason, because being a blind person, I felt volatile, as, as Liz would tell you. But, you know, I, I live a great life. I, I have the best decision I ever made was to merge these two families. Mm. Because ironically, my second wife, Liz, is now in Monash, uh, Monash Hospital yes. with uh, brain encephalitis. Uh, yeah. So. Where, how that will uh, how that will uh, work out, I don't know. But I'm backed by a good family. Mm. I have faith, and I have uh, a lot of faith in, in Liz to to fight back from this. Mm. And having that family support is key for every decision we make in our life at some stage or other. That's it's really important, isn't it? Including yours to return to Adelaide. Adelaide. Absolutely, yes. It was really you know it was well, what's important to me. Family. I want to be here. For sure, and definitely don't regret it. Well, um, I've enjoyed today. I suspect you've virtually, virtually wrung me dry. I can't think of anything else <laughs> that would, would add anything to it. But, but I might compliment you on, on the way you handle these interviews. They, are, they have pathos, they're empathetic and very intuitive. Thank you, Tina. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. A huge shout out to you for being here, for listening in and being ready to step up to the drawing board. I honour your spirit and your openness to growth. If you have a mate who you think will benefit from hearing today's message, please share this episode with them. Another great way you can support us is to subscribe or to leave a five-star review in iTunes. These reviews really do assist us to raise the visibility of the Design You podcast and helps us to reach Design Yours from all walks of life. I really do appreciate the time it takes for you to do that. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Design You podcast. You'll find the show notes over at tinamurray.com. Can't wait to see what you create as you design it, communicate it and live it.